Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Willy Willy, Harry Stee, Harry Dick John, Harry three, one, two, three, Neds, Richard two, Henry's four, five, six, then who? Edward's four, five, Dick the bad, Harry's twain, and Ned the lad. Mary, Bessie, James the vain. Yes, that's James the first, James the first of England, who was simultaneously James the sixth of Scotland. Was he a vain man? I don't know. It may be slightly coded uh, certainly you know the we've seen how the tudors and uh, perhaps even more so the stuarts did love to dress up in their finery but james also is possibly bisexual uh, he did have three surviving children with his wife anne and he does genuinely seem to have had affection for her but obviously that is no proof of one's sexuality either way. But, you know, this sort of speculation about monarch's sexuality, it changes as sensibilities change. You know, at one point to accuse a monarch of being homosexual was a terrible, ghastly slur. Now a lot of people are saying, you know, it was a great thing that he was. There is greater support for diverse human sexuality but there is always a danger with these things of imposing modern views and modern ways of behavior and imposing those views on the past and interpreting the way people behaved as if they were living in the modern world but you know James the Vain he certainly did have a high opinion of himself his son Charles the first had an even higher opinion of himself and he seems to have inherited a lot of his views about 
the divine right of kings, if you want to call it that, from his father, James, although he was not nearly as adept as James at working the political system. And whilst he pushed things quite far, he was always very careful uh, not to go too far. So perhaps James the Vain is, you know, that idea of the Stuarts kind of behaving as if they are well, well above everybody else. Now, I didn't know a huge amount about James before making this series, beyond the obvious facts that I think most people know. He was the first Scottish king to take the English throne, and he annoyed the Catholics who tried to blow him up in the gunpowder plot. But in learning more about him, I've actually come to quite like James and be quite impressed by him. And there's a huge amount going on during his life, which makes this a pivotal part of English history. So this episode is going to be a bit longer than most of the other episodes. So get yourself a comfy chair, settle down and enjoy what I think is a really interesting story. Now, maybe my view of James had been influenced by the rhyme. I'd sort of dismissed him as this, well, this sort of vain, dilettantish figure. But actually, he seems to have been a pretty tough guy and... He came to both the Scottish throne and the English throne under very difficult circumstances, and he managed to navigate these things um, as well as Elizabeth I had. And in some ways, you could say he did it better than Elizabeth. Um, he did annoy a lot of people by the end. He always had problems with the economy, with his own finances, and he was constantly fighting with the, the Parliament, with the House of Commons, over trying to get hold of more money, sometimes by raising large taxes, which annoyed a lot of people. But he managed to keep England out of uh, foreign wars. Unfortunately, Charles I was much less successful on this front. He was a bit more bellicose. But James, perhaps because he didn't want to waste the money, tried very hard not to get involved in wars in Europe. And it was during James's reign that the Thirty Years' War started, which was this huge cataclysmic war in Europe. I mean, a bit like the First World War. It is a, a sort of imperial dynastic dispute that, that consumed all of Europe. The war starts as fighting in the northern part of the Habsburg Empire between areas that want to be Protestant and areas that want to remain Catholic. Inevitably, France gets involved, particularly when the great Louis XIV takes the throne and really makes France a powerhouse. And also Spain is involved, the southern part of the Habsburg Empire, it has imperialistic aims of its own. Spain already rules Portugal, large parts of Italy, large parts of the Low Countries and parts of South America. And it has to be said that England is not really seen as an important player in all this. It's a very minor country on the fringe of Europe at this point, and Scotland even more so. And James, as I say, he doesn't want to get involved in these wars, even though he's being urged to support the Protestants and prove once and for all that he's not secretly a Catholic. Now, the First World War was originally just called the Great War, and it was only with the involvement of America towards the end that it became termed the First World War. But if you look at the Thirty Years' War, 
America does come into it. America is this vast treasure chest, as the Europeans see it, ready to be plundered. So the countries in Europe who could best exploit America would become the wealthiest and most dominant ones. And the war does actually physically spread to the Americas. There's fighting in what were known as the West Indies. So I think it's fair to look at the Thirty Years' War as a proto-world war. It escalates from a local conflict into this lengthy, incredibly destructive and costly war. Millions upon millions of people were killed. And Central Europe, essentially Germany, ends up shattered So I think James should be applauded for not getting dragged into all this. After all, he's got enough on his plate at home. And the big central feature of his reign is this idea of him being both King of Scotland and King of England. And the fact that there's a Scottish king on the English throne at all, which makes Elizabeth technically our last English monarch. Now, I said um, at the end, I think probably the last couple of episodes of this idea that when James takes the throne, the Scots are thinking, great, you know, this is this will be good for Scotland. But it ends up with Scotland being consumed by England. But it wasn't quite that clear cut. It was interesting that the man who was really pushing for full unification, who really wanted to call himself King of Great Britain, not King of England and King of Scotland as two separate entities, was James himself. He really wanted to rule an empire. And it's also interesting that the pushback from this is coming not only from the Scots, because they feel that if the thrones of England and Scotland are combined, that will be for England's benefit and Scotland's detriment. But the English are very much against it as well because they are scared that if James does that, the Scottish will have too much power in England and he will keep appointing Scottish noblemen and lords to positions of power and giving English lands away to the Scots. And the historian James Hawes, who we've had on as a guest a couple of times over the series, um, in his book, The Shortest History of England, talks a lot about this, the concept of the English and the English people being worried that if... England becomes an empire, if it expands too much and takes over too much of the world, then the English themselves will be sidelined. They will be a little part of it rather than being the whole part of it. It is not actually until a hundred years later, during the reign of the last Stuart monarch, Queen Anne, that England and Scotland are officially united in the Act of Union, the first step towards the United Kingdom um, and the first official recognition of the concept of Great Britain. Now, the other country that is involved in this is Ireland. The English kings have traditionally been called Lords of Ireland. Uh, When James takes the throne, he is Lord of Ireland. But actually, the English power base in Ireland through the Tudor period, is very small. It's this area known as the Pale, which is up on the the, the sort of far east coast of, of what is now called Northern Ireland. There was some influence outside of that, but really the English had a tiny toehold in, in Ireland. Um, they were constantly sending people over there to fight the Irish. But this changed in a big way 
in James's reign, which I'll come on to later. And of course, James's reign sees the continuation of the problems and possibilities caused by the Reformation, uh, the introduction of Protestantism into England and into Scotland. In some ways, the Scottish were more radically Protestant, following the teachings of this French Protestant, John Calvin. I think his proper name is actually Yehan Covan, um, but we call him John Calvin. And he had a more sort of hardline approach to Protestantism, which became Presbyterianism in Scotland. And the sort of chief leader of that is this guy, John Knox, who we've looked at in previous episodes. James, throughout his reign, is having to balance the demands and the needs of the Catholics against the demands and the needs of the Protestants, keeping his cards close to his chest as to what he himself actually believes. And as is often the way with these things, the Protestants think that he's secretly a Catholic and the Catholics think that he's secretly a rabid Protestant. And this toing and froing between the Protestants and the Catholics about who's going to be in charge carries right on through James's reign, through Charles, Cromwell, Charles II, James II, and it's only really sort of laid to rest in James II's reign. But we've got a few episodes to go before we get to that. So when James comes into the world, he's got a lot to contend with. There's all these great political and religious things going on. But there is also the problem of his mother, Mary, Queen of Scots. Now, just to backtrack, if you haven't been listening to any other episodes, why did James have a claim to the English throne? Well, it is through his great-grandfather, Henry VII. Um, two of his children were Henry VIII and his older sister, Margaret and Henry arranged a marriage of Margaret to the Scottish King James IV. Uh, they had a son, James V, and he had a daughter, Mary, Queen of Scots. She comes to the throne and the Scots don't like it, particularly people like John Knox, who don't like having a woman on the throne. And she won't ever really fully come down on the side of Protestantism. Sometimes she says, oh, yes, I'll be a Protestant. But everybody knows that she's really a Catholic. She spent 13 years when she was young at the French court um, and very much brought French views and attitudes and Catholicism back with her to Scotland. Even so far as changing the spelling of the Stuart name, the Scottish spelling is S-T-E-W-A-R-T, but the French version is S-T-U-A-R-T, which has pretty much stuck. Although at the time, the Stuarts, including uh, James himself, were calling himself Scottish Stuart, S-T-E-W-A-R-T. And when James was baptised, he was baptised as a Catholic by his mother uh, and given the names Charles and James. Uh, the first name being a French name, and he was given it after his godfather, Charles IX, King of France. And he and all those other Charleses were no doubt named after Charles the Great Charlemagne, the founder of France. And his second name, James, being the traditional name of Stuart Kings. And it's interesting that James, right from the start, was called James. The Charles part was dropped. That was too French, that was too Catholic, that was too foreign. James, Scottish, Protestant. That's okay. 
And the Italian version of James is, is Jacobo or Jacobus. And this is where we get the term Jacobite, which is used to denote this period of our history, the Jacobite period. But even before James was born, there was violence and bloodshed and disruption. Mary had rather foolishly married one of the Stuarts, and he was a grandson of Margaret Tudor, so related to Mary. And the Scottish historian and the expert on the Stuarts, Jenny Warmold, characterised Darnley as a witless drunkard. So not a great marriage for Mary. Darnley gets jealous of Mary's secretary. is an Italian called Rizzio. He's jealous on two reasons. One, he thinks he's influencing Mary and moving her towards Catholicism. And two, he thinks the two of them are sleeping together. And there are rumours that Rizzio is actually the father of the unborn boy who will grow up to be King James. And um, we saw in the episode on Mary, Queen of Scots, how... Darnley got his followers together, um, ambushed Mary when she was having dinner with Rizzio and murdered him in front of her, thinking he would get away with it as um, being the king consort of Scotland. And he did sort of get away with it, although he went on the run with Mary for a while. Darnley had been part of this group of Scottish Protestant lords called the Confederate Lords. And the murder of Rizzio also seemed to have been an attempt by Darnley to be properly part of their gang. It was a gangland killing, if you like, to earn his gang tattoo. But this was still a very controversial act. And for a while, Darnley went on the run with Mary, trying to keep her from ditching him. He switched sides to Catholicism for a little while with Mary, presumably because he was worried about hanging on to his, uh, his kingship. And then when they returned to Edinburgh, he was soon after murdered himself. His house was blown up and he was found dead in the garden. Mary was still pregnant at the time. She gave birth soon afterwards. And soon after that, she married the ringleader of Darnley's murderers, this guy Bothwell, who was as bad, if not a worse marriage than Darnley, causing the Scottish people to, to turn massively against her. And the hardline preachers like John Knox really turn against her, to the extent that she's eventually captured, imprisoned in Loch Leven Castle and forced to abdicate in favour of her newborn son, James. She sees James for the last time at Loch Leven Castle when he's brought to her. He's being raised elsewhere. She then escapes from the castle, tries to raise an army to fight against the new protector of Scotland, her half-brother, James Stuart, Earl of Moray. Now, he was the illegitimate son of Mary's father, James V, in a time when illegitimate sons were respected and given titles um, and allowed to continue on as if they were almost legitimate. And in fact, he is technically the next in line to the throne after James. He defeats Mary. Mary flees south to England, a disastrous move, because now her supporters in Scotland have no figurehead. Mary goes south in the hope of recruiting Elizabeth to her cause, but she is a danger to Elizabeth who puts her under house arrest and she spends the next 20 years of her life being taken from castle to castle in England. There are various risings and uprisings um, in Scotland which don't really come to much and Moray is pretty much in charge 
there's a big inquiry. I suppose it's sort of equivalent of these modern government inquiries that we have um, in York, where Elizabeth has to decide who has the right to the Scottish throne. Is it Mary or is it Confederate lords under Moray? In the end, she doesn't decide either way, but she gives Moray a large sum of money to return to Scotland uh, and she keeps Mary under lock and key. So after Mary has fled to England, James is coronated as an infant. And James wasn't a lot older than this. He was only 13 months old uh, when in 1567 he was crowned King of Scotland in Stirling Parish Church. And the sermon at that ceremony was preached by good old John Knox, really hoping they could cement James as a, as a lifelong Protestant. So for his early life, Scotland was ruled by this string of regents and he had a modern humanist education under this guy called George Buchanan, who was a very intelligent man, but also seemed to be an extremely nasty man. He had been very outright in his condemnations of James's mother, Mary, and he believed that this boy, who, although he was the Lord's anointed, um, was still a boy, um, and he believed that a strict education was absolutely vital. Um, and George Buchanan, being a terrible sadist, was very fond of beating the boy. And, you know, you can imagine that, that James was treated probably even worse than ordinary boys because it's like just because he's the king of scotland we're not going to treat him softly we're going to make sure he's treated like everyone else and we're going to thrash him soundly and enthusiastically and so he actually ends up being treated worse than everyone else and, and Buchanan is very much the model of the sadistic teacher, which has persisted down the years, who under the guise of saying they're doing the best for children, particularly boys, actually loves to beat them and bully them. Later on, after Buchanan was long dead, uh, James professed to be quite proud that he'd been educated by such a distinguished and intelligent man and was often complimented for his pronunciation of Latin and Greek. Uh, his education was indeed very heavily classical, but it, he also learned history, politics, theology, other languages, geography, mathematics. Um, but um, it wasn't all work and no play. He was given romances to read. Um, he was encouraged to do sports. He was given bows and arrows, hunting gloves. He was a great lover of hunting through his life. And he also was given a set of golf clubs. And, you know, they do say that the, the golf was introduced to Britain by the Romans, um, but it very much became this Scottish thing. So it, it, it is funny to think of... Uh, <laughs> Stuart Kings having sets of golf clubs. But there you go. Now, as I say, James had this very, very strict, tough and intensive education, claiming later on that he could speak Latin before he could speak Scottish. And I think in many ways you can describe him as an intellectual. He was a great reader and also a great writer. He wrote polemical works, poetry. He commissioned the translation of the Bible, known as the King James Bible, as well as the Book of Common Prayer. The theatre flourished under him. Shakespeare really came into his own. And the King James Bible, like Shakespeare, gave us so many phrases and ways of saying things. 
is become embedded in the DNA of the English language. He was no bookish, nerdy weakling, however. And as he grew up, he showed a lot of tenacity, a lot of toughness. The Scots themselves, the Scottish lords, first of all the protectors and then various other rebel lords, were continually trying to push young James around and influence him. And he navigated this very well, sometimes appearing to be friends with them and then turning on them when he had more power. But uh, he, he really stood up for himself. He also had to contend with Elizabeth down in England, thinking, OK, there's a boy on the throne of Scotland. We can manipulate that. We can get him to do what we want him to do. Um, but James wouldn't. He was always polite. He'd send her a nice letter, sort of, dear auntie. Actually, I mean, he wasn't. She wasn't his auntie, but she was a relative. Dear Artie, thank you for your kind letter telling me to do this, that. Um, very interested in what you have to say, but I've decided to do something else instead. And Elizabeth got furious with him, calling him that false Scots urchin. And the thing was, there had been miners coming to the Scottish throne since about 1400. And James himself had been the third an infant to come to the throne. James V, his grandfather, had been 18 months old in 1513. His mother Mary was only a week old in 1542. So the Scots were used to having these children on the throne, but it did mean they were also used to sort of mounting these civil wars and attempts to, to, to take control for themselves, to change the regency. And as we've seen so often in English history, they didn't ever try to kill the king. They would always try and take the child and, and keep them under their own protectorship so that they could be in charge uh, and they would um, get rid of the other regents or the regency councils. So there was a string of regents trying to run the country and manipulate James, but they all came to bad ends. Moray, Mary, Queen of Scots' half-brother, was assassinated in 1570. Then the next regent, James's grandfather, the Earl of Lennox, was shot dead in one of these skirmishes in the Civil War. Then John Erskine, the Earl of Mar, was elected, and he died of a sudden illness after a meal. He could well have been poisoned, although I don't think it was officially registered as that. And then finally, James Douglas, the fourth Earl of Morton, took over in 1572. He lasted six years before a coup led by Colin Campbell, the sixth Earl of Argyll, and John Stuart, the fourth Earl of Athol, and I'm not expecting you to remember all these names. I can only remember them because I've got them written down. It's enormously complicated. But essentially, all these regents are, are trying to knock each other off. But uh, around about his 12th birthday, James says, look, guys, don't worry about it. I'm, I'll take over. I'll run things. And he has a spectacular procession where he arrives in Edinburgh in 1579 in all his pomp and ceremony saying, you know, I may be young but I'm going to take over and I'm going to rule now. And he he maintained that tough, no-nonsense attitude through the rest of his reign, not giving in to, to these factions working either for him or against him, not giving in to higher powers like Elizabeth. So it's around about this time that the first of the significant men enters his life. The men who give rise to the rumours, the gossip, whatever, that he prefers men to women. is a guy of Scottish origin whose family have settled in France. He's called Esme Stuart. And apparently Esme was 
a male name, it, it means esteemed, I think, was a male name right up until the mid-20th century where it, it, it suddenly switched to being a female name. So we snigger now that he was called Esme Stewart. Well, we shouldn't snigger. It's a little bit childish. And he also signed some of his documents, Amy. So it seems that was also a male name at the time. Look, stop your sniggering. Now, Esme was about 20 years older than young James, and he became a very significant figure in his life. Some historians have, have said, oh, James is this poor, lonely figure. He's got no parents. He's um, isolated at court. And here is this friendly, charismatic older man, and he sort of forms an attachment to him. Others have said, well, it was essentially a homosexual relationship. Others have said nothing of the sort. This man just turned up and James liked him and gave him various titles and positions of power. You can make your own mind up. But also he wasn't very popular at court. And this often leads to these stories and rumours going around, particularly as he was a pro-French Catholic. But he quickly becomes the king's favourite. And courtiers don't like kings having favourites. Lennox was forced to leave Scotland. But James continued to become more and more assertive. He wasn't going to be told what to do, either by his own actual mother, Mary, down in England, who's trying to control him from afar, or by this other mother, the mother of England, Queen Elizabeth, who was also trying but failing to act like a, a, a mother to James. But well, then in 1582, a group of hardline Presbyterian nobles under William Ruthven, the first Earl of Gowrie, they kidnapped the king and put him under house arrest in their castle, in Ruthven Castle, in an attempt to control him. He's there for over a year, but it all comes to nothing. He manages to escape, reassert his control. And unlike Mary, Queen of Scots, who never really knew how to deal with the people who were rebelling against her, or even in many ways, Elizabeth down in England, who was always very hesitant to um, execute rivals, as is shown by the fact that she kept Mary, Queen of Scots, around for 20 years before she eventually um, had her head cut off. James was much more decisive and forthright. He arrests Gowrie, his main kidnapper, and executes him. And this is a sort of pattern that carries on through James's life. Whenever there are these uprisings against him, he deals with them very efficiently, puts them down quickly, gets the ringleaders out of the way and hangs on to the throne. Now, I think he was actually a pretty canny ruler. So whenever there were these plots against James, they tended to be pretty brief and he tended to deal with them very ruthlessly. Um, there was another attempt on his life by the third Earl of Gowrie, John Ruthven, son of the man who had been executed for kidnapping young James. And nobody really knows exactly what happened. There seemed to have been some kind of an argument in James's private chambers. Perhaps there was an attempt by John Ruthven and his brother Alexander to kill or perhaps just kidnap the king. But whatever happened, the two brothers were run through with swords. They both died in this attack, killed by members of James's retinue. It may have just been that James lured them there and decided to have them bumped off without the bother of a trumped-up conspiracy charge and a trial. 
that's the sort of model of behaviour that James continues with uh, through his life. I mentioned before that James had a string of favourites, starting with Esme Stuart, the Earl of Lennox, who James actually wrote a really, probably his best poem about Esme, because Esme died in France later on, uh, and James wrote this poem, The Phoenix, about him. But after Esme Stuart, there was a number of favourites, starting in Scotland and then the same in England. There were guys including George Gordon, the Earl of Huntley, Robert Carr, the Earl of Somerset, and most prominent of all was George Villiers, the Duke of Buckingham, who we'll come on to later. But we don't know the truth about James's sexuality. I mean, much has been said and talked about it, but it can only ever really be speculative. And the fact of the matter is he did get married. In 1589, he got hitched to Anne of Denmark, or Anna of Denmark, as she was known in Scotland, who was the daughter of the Danish king, Frederick II. And this is one of those political marriages. James wanted a treaty with the Danish. The Scandinavians were increasingly becoming involved in politics, in wars in Central Europe. Um, and Denmark was a good ally to have. But the other thing, of course, you get with a marriage is a dowry. If you're a man, essentially your bride's father pays you to take her off his hands with this dowry. And James went in with a rather cheeky request of a dowry to start with. He asked for one million Scottish pounds. Um, which was ridiculous. There's no way Denmark was going to give him one million Scottish pounds um, to take Anne. Uh, and they bargained him down to £150,000, which was still quite a lot of money, although James managed to spend £100,000 of it on the wedding and the festivities around it. Many people have accused James of being a miser and miserable to boot, but he does seem to have liked to party. He certainly liked to drink. Now, before he married Anna, her first attempt to come and join him in Scotland had failed when her small fleet had been driven back by storms to Denmark. And James, rather gallantly, and some people have said this is the only gallant thing he ever did in his life, the only romantic act, was he set sail for Scotland with his own small fleet to go and rescue her. And he stayed there for some time and essentially having a bit of a holiday um, in Denmark. And he enjoyed meeting the various um, intellectuals and scientists, artists and writers there in Oslo, including the astronomer Tycho Brahe. And he was an enormously clever astronomer. And he did it all without a telescope, just by observing the skies with, his, with the naked eye. In fact, he was the last significant astronomer not to use the telescope, which was invented soon after. And all the visible signs were that James enjoyed himself in Denmark. He fell in love with his new 15-year-old fiancée, Anne, or Anna, and eventually the two of them sailed to England and they had three children, a boy called Henry Frederick, a second boy called Charles and a daughter called Elizabeth. Henry Frederick um, died as a young teenager, Charles grew up to take the throne as Charles I. So James had managed to do what Elizabeth had not managed to do. He had managed to produce some heirs. 
as was usual amongst the royals, the children, almost as soon as they're born, are taken away and, and fostered by someone else, which Anne, uh, being Danish and having uh, different expectations, didn't like at all. And this caused a bit of um, argument between the two of them. Now, one of the things that James had discussed in Denmark was witches. This was a period in Europe where there was a sort of witch fever. People were becoming obsessed by them. And maybe this was something of, of a fallout from all the other disruptions that are going on. Um, these arguments between the idea of Protestantism and Catholicism. And the Protestants are now saying that the Catholics are heretics. The Catholics are saying that the Protestants are heretics. And the Protestants are saying, you know, you have these weird magic rituals involved in Catholicism. You know, the Holy Communion where this bread literally becomes the body of Christ. And, and the wine literally turns into his blood and you have this worship of saints and idols and things so this idea of what is religion and what is not religion and the idea of religion getting inverted spreads into this idea of worship of satan the dark lord himself with a completely inverted religious ceremony that mocks the christian rituals and involves quite a lot of kissing the devil's ass. So James got involved in this and when he got back to Scotland, stories sprung up that a group of Scottish witches had caused this storm to drive Anne back to Denmark and there were trials of witches accused of this and they were all forced under torture to confess and come up with these lurid tales of satanic ceremonies and actually summoning the devil and James went so far as to write a book called Demonology in 1597 which was all about witchcraft and the inversion of the coven the uh, the idea of the devil being God's ape and he wrote this fairly serious book on witchcraft. And so he's gone down in history as being absolutely obsessed by witchcraft and, and the, the, the scourge of the witches. But actually, within a couple of years, he'd said, you know what? This is all bollocks. This is all just been made up. And he pretty much turned against the idea of witchcraft. And he, he was smart enough to see that people were using this idea um, for their own ends and, yet again, to keep women in their place. Shakespeare famously picked up on this obsession with witches um, and, and put them into Macbeth and created this idea that they sort of know the future and that they're manipulating all these events. And, you know, this is a classic conspiracy theory. So James has lavish wedding to Anne. He sets her up in the royal palace uh, and she is given this group of eight men to kind of look after her household. You have the queen's household, you have the king's household and each of his three children also had their own individual households. And these eight men are known as the Octavians and it seems that James's own ruling council, as it were, his own uh, privy council in Scotland, he felt that they were inept. They felt that he was inept. He, all through his reign, he struggled with finances, with money. But it seemed to be that the Octavians who were running Anne's household were doing very well, even so far as she gave him a gift of this purse of gold coins saying, here you are, I've managed to save this up. My finances have been so well run. You can have it. You need it. 
At which point James says, oh, I'm going to get the Octavians to run the country, get rid of the lot I've got in. I'll get the Octavians in. And um, they didn't do a much better job. And there was still all this religious turmoil going on. Anne actually converted to Catholicism. She had been a Protestant, but she switched. And James, rather than having a huge row with her, said to her quietly, all right, look, do this, but don't make a big deal about it. Don't make this an embarrassment for me. Because the Counter-Reformation is, is a, a big reactionary movement through Europe. And I, I mentioned earlier how we had the Thirty Years' War starting, which is essentially a war between Protestants and Catholics for, for the heart of Europe. So James had to try to keep everybody happy at home. And while he was in Scotland ruling as King James VI, he had a big push to sort of big up Scotland, Scottish arts and poetry and history. Um, he made this all very important and he tried to give off this aura of being this great king of a great country, the magnificent Scotland, which was all a bit of a myth because Scotland at the time was a pretty dilapidated dingy place. They only had a couple of kind of major uh, towns, cities. The economics weren't great. But he sort of burnished this idea of, it's the greatest country on earth. Why would you want to go and live anywhere else? Uh, and there's this idea that some historians have that he was desperate to come down and rule in England, but certainly in his time he wasn't. He was quite happy up there in Scotland saying he was king of the world. And his main interest in what was happening in England and who was going to succeed Elizabeth was that he was wary of any foreign powers coming in and changing the status quo. So in some ways, you know, you think of two posh houses next to each other and the old woman in the house next door is going to pop her clogs fairly soon and it could be bought, you know, oh my God, what if it's bought by a bunch of rich Arabs or something and they come in and change the neighbourhood or the Chinese buy it up. So James has the idea, perhaps I ought to buy it myself and then I'll be in control. And he starts to have secret talks with Elizabeth's right-hand man, Sir Robert Cecil, from about 1600. So they are making plans. But Cecil and Elizabeth were quite concerned with James that he wasn't being strict enough imposing Protestant laws and ideals and that he should be coming down hard, particularly on the Jesuits, who they really didn't like. But James famously said, I will never allow in my conscience that the blood of any man shall be shed for the diversity of opinion in religion. Which to me seems very enlightened. And then finally, at last, in 1603, the thing that everybody had been waiting some time for happened. Elizabeth died. And the English government instantly wrote to James, offering him the crown. And James accepted it. And, and Cecil said, well, James, you better hurry down to England. Don't stop off on the way. Come straight here, uh, because this might not be a popular decision. There may be people trying to rebel against you. They might even try and capture you on the way. But James said, no, no, not at all. I'm going to make the most of this. And he has this sort of slow procession down through the north where the crowds seem to have liked him. Uh, I, I think there was this idea, oh, at last we've got a man back on the throne. We've got a king again. 
And so there was a lot of enthusiasm for him. And his succession to the throne was unchallenged. A completely new dynasty coming in. The son of Mary, Queen of Scots, the great enemy of Elizabeth, has come to the throne. But people just wanted things to be settled. They didn't want another civil war. They didn't want all these lords to be killing each other. They just wanted to get on with their lives. The merchants wanted to carry on with the trading. The farmers wanted to carry on working in the fields without armies trampling all over their crops. And James did seem to offer stability. And you know what? He, he kept it through his reign. There were, of course, plots against him. Most famously, as we will come on to soon, the gunpowder plot, as it became known. But he held his own and he held on to that throne and he stopped the country descending into chaos. His arrival in England coincided with a fresh outbreak of the plague, which killed about a quarter of the population of London. So his official state entry into the city uh, was delayed. There was a very poor turnout at his coronation, him and Queen Anne at Westminster Abbey. And the printing presses had been going great guns in London, printing his latest book, Basilicon Doron, uh, in which he set out his views on kingship. And as I said, his views were quite old-fashioned. It was the king is the king. Everybody else pretty much needs to do what they say. Um, but the printing presses were closed because of the plague, which did, like all the other plagues, eventually burn itself out and he was able to uh, get things running back to normal. There was a certain amount of argument when he comes to the throne in terms of how many Scottish lords will he bring down to put into the English Parliament. And obviously the English lords aren't wanting to be ousted. Well, the Scottish lords are saying, oh, I'm sorry, but... We've got one of ours on the throne. We need to be down there at the heart of it. Before James left Scotland, he assured everybody. He said, look, Scotland, you are still the most important thing to me. I've just got to go and do this little thing down in England. But I'll be back. But he never returned. He basically became anglified. Because as soon as he gets to England and sees what it's really like, he says, oh, my God, England, and excuse my terrible accent, but I'm enjoying it. Oh, my God, England, it is like a soft feather of bed compared to the hard stone bench that is Scotland. Um, it seemed while he'd been in Scotland, he'd believed his own Scottish propaganda. But suddenly he sees this comparatively wealthy, luxurious country and he enjoys life at the palace and in London. And as I say, he pretty much turns his back on Scotland. He does try to get. Scots people in around him in Parliament. Uh, there's constant arguing about this. There's also constant arguing about his finances, about his idea that he is king and they just all should do what he says, about his what they see as his being a bit sort of wishy-washy about religion, where in fact what he's trying to do is just keep the peace, keep everybody happy. Some people are wanting him to go and get involved in the, the European wars. He doesn't want that. He just wants stability and he wants to rule with a firm hand. And he argues a lot with Parliament, even at one point proroguing Parliament, shutting it down and saying, I'm just going to run it without a Parliament. Uh, so things go even worse and his finances get even worse. And the big thing that he wants to do, and it is really interesting, he wants to unite England and Scotland properly. He wants to create the Kingdom of Great Britain. And 
The Scots don't want this because they think, oh God, we're going to be the junior partner in this, which they would be and which they still are. And the English don't want it because they see it as a loss of English sovereignty. Already there are Scotsmen infiltrating English Parliament, as they see it. And they see that England will be made lesser in this. It will be a small part of a larger whole. So there was no unification. James Ian went so far as saying we will have a common currency, a union currency. That never happened. That was his dream. He started styling himself King of Great Britain, but it wasn't official. But his biggest problem in England was the Catholic conspirators, these reactionaries who wanted to go back to the old ways and also partly, you know, bring an Englishman back to the throne, a good Catholic Englishman from the olden days. And there was this big plot against him, the gunpowder plot, where this Catholic Lord Robert Catesby sets up a conspiracy, a plot to blow up the Houses of Parliament. And he hires this guy, Guy Fawkes, to do this, an ex-soldier, a Catholic. But crucially, he's from up north. And as we know, everybody from up north hates Londoners. So he's happy to blow the whole of London up. They reckon he had 36 barrels of dynamite that he that he hid in the cellars under the Houses of Parliament. They reckon if he'd managed to light his fire and explode those barrels, that explosion would have killed not just James himself, but his wife, his children. It would have completely destroyed the Houses of Parliament because this was planned for the opening of Parliament. The whole of Parliament, as well as Whitehall and Westminster Abbey, it would have been an enormously destructive explosion. And, you know, Guy Fawkes has been personified, particularly recently, as this sort of revolutionary figure. He's anti-the government, and particularly on the back of Alan Moore's comic V for Vendetta, that mask of Guy Fawkes has been something that sort of anarchists and anti-government types wear at marches and things. But Guy Fawkes was a reactionary. He didn't like the new way of doing things. He hated Protestantism. So, you know, I don't see Guy Fawkes as a forward-looking revolutionary. I see him as being, you know, in some ways, a gammon. We want to go back to the old ways of doing things. Not this new namby-pamby Scottish bloody government. But the plot was foiled. This anonymous letter was handed to William Parker, the fourth Baron Monteagle, who was a Catholic lord. And it said, you know what? You might not want to be at Parliament on this date. Go to your country estates. You'll be happier there. Now... Was this deliberate? Had somebody spied on and uncovered the plot? Was one of the plotters getting cold feet? Or, or were they just trying to save someone they thought would be a sympathiser might be useful to them afterwards? Because they knew how destructive this thing was going to be. And so men were sent down to search the cellars. They come across Guy Fawkes with a big stack of wood hiding the barrels. And he says, oh, it's all right, mate. I'm just uh, looking after this wood here, making sure it's all... Ship shape. I say, uh, very good, we won't trouble you any further. And they go away, they don't find anything. But they are persuaded to go back again, and this time they look behind the stack of wood to find the 36 barrels. So the King and Parliament and Westminster Abbey were saved. The plotters weren't. Catesby himself was shot in a gunfight at Holbeach House, and the surviving eight conspirators, including Guy Fawkes himself, um, were tried 
and sentenced to be hanged, drawn and quartered, the worst possible punishment. It's interesting that we remember this event through a bonfire because Guy Fawkes wasn't actually burnt. I think it would have been a more fitting way to, to, to get rid of him. But no, he was hung, drawn and quartered. So really, we should be having hanging, drawing and quartering night instead of bonfire night. And in some ways, the sort of bonfire thing is a weird celebration of the plot. It's an inversion. Because we all of us, despite what I said about Guy Fawkes being reactionary, we all of us dream of like, wow, wouldn't it be great to blow the whole lot up? But obviously, bonfire night and these huge fires and the burning of the... Penny for the guy, sir. Um, this effigy of Guy Fawkes that traditionally was burnt. I don't know if people even do burn the guys anymore. In many ways, it celebrates the general burning of Catholics. But I think it is also a night of sort of of release and chaos and, and anarchy. Fireworks going everywhere, big fires in the night. The gunpowder plot is the most serious threat to James's reign. But uh, James had been plagued by illness throughout his life. Arthritis, kidney stones, skin complaints, uh, breathing problems, piles. He was a fairly sickly and physically miserable specimen. And in the end, it did for him. Possibly pneumonia at the end. And many historians still dismiss him say he wasn't very good and that was my opinion coming into this series but having found out more about him I think he, he played a crucial role in preserving the stability of England and he took the first steps towards what would become in the United Kingdom so join me after the break where I'll be discussing all of this with Claire Jackson who is a historian specialising in the Stuart period Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Welcome back and welcome to my special guest, Claire Jackson who is Honorary Professor of Early Modern History at the University of Cambridge and Fellow of Trinity Hall, Cambridge, who has written and broadcast extensively about the Stuarts. She wrote about Charles II in the Penguin Monarchs series and is currently writing a book on James I, which is going to be published in 2025, which is the 400th anniversary of his death. And her most recent book won the Wolfson History Prize in 2022. It's called Devil Land. England under siege, 1588 to 1688. 
So, Claire, welcome to the show. Now, the significance of those dates, I guess, is invasions or planned invasions. 1588 is the Spanish Armada and 1688 is when William of Orange brings a Dutch army over to help him take the throne. But but tell us, why Devil Land? It's a pretty hostile nickname that a Dutch pamphleteer coined to describe England in 1652. Um, it was just after the regicide of Charles I and uh, this outraged anonymous Dutch pamphleteer couldn't believe that the English, the Angli, were still always regarded as angeli, sort of angels. He thought they were diabolical devils who had put their divinely <laughs> ordained king, Charles I, on trial. Uh, the new Republican regime seemed entirely unrepentant and now was about to declare war on the Dutch. So it's about England's vexed relationship with its continental European neighbours. So under siege from the rest of Europe? Under siege, yes, both sort of fearing imminent invasion, whether that's so it's bookended by a real attempted invasion, the Spanish Armada. And then it's also at the other end, bookended by a real invasion, uh, William of Orange with his large Dutch flotilla. And this idea of foreign powers always looking to England as somewhere that they can influence or intervene or even invade um, is very much the theme of the book. And it's partly also a, a sort of mental notion of being under siege. Actually, the danger to England's um, political structures and social structures was much less than people thought it was. But I mean, it does involve the 20 years of the civil wars and a real sort of themes of precarity and contingency is, is what the book's trying to get across. I suppose Elizabeth played on this idea that politicians still play on today of the enemies are all lined up against us and therefore you should do what I tell you. But while Elizabeth had been actively engaged in foreign wars, particularly with Spain, James seemed to have wanted to keep out of things and let the Europeans fight amongst themselves. He didn't want to get involved for financial terms and military terms, but he was absolutely involved diplomatically. I mean, one of the mm. themes of Devil Land really was to try and bring the geopolitics of 17th century England and its continental neighbours um, into dialogue with the Stuarts as a foreign dynasty in England who arrive in 1603 um, and who can't necessarily be trusted to act always or even to understand England's national interests. Certainly compared to Elizabeth, um, the Stuarts are much more cosmopolitan. James, partly having been king um, for 40 years and king for 20 years as an adult monarch in Scotland before he comes to the English throne, has spent a huge amount of time building up a sort of diplomatic presence and profile across Europe. And part of his campaign to succeed Elizabeth is predicated on having good relations with uh, European leaders, both Protestant and Catholic. So he is very used to having a very large diplomatic presence in Edinburgh of foreign host nations, but also sending out diplomatic embassies across Europe all the time. And that's really different from Elizabeth's isolationism. I mean, she didn't have a single ambassador in any Catholic country um, at the time of her death, except France, whereas James has always had a much bigger diplomatic profile, uh, also a sort of intellectual profile. He's someone who's, who publishes works on political theory and um, theology, and those are translated into numerous languages across Europe. So, no, I would see the, the Stuarts as being much more cosmopolitan. They also spend time out of um, uh, their home country. James leaves Scotland for nearly a year in 1589 to 90 to go and collect his Danish bride from Norway. And then he spends time in Denmark. 
And Charles, uh, his son, spends that sort of uh, rather famous six months at the Spanish court when he's Prince of Wales. And then Charles II obviously spends 11 years um, mm. in a sort of itinerant continental exile. Um, and, you know, that time abroad does give these Stuart monarchs exposure and familiarity with other royal courts. And you can certainly see in Charles I's um, experience, you know, the impact of spending six months at the very formal and reified Spanish court, it really shows in his art and in his culture thereafter. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting because I, I came to this series with a fairly dim view of James. But having looked into his life, I've actually been very impressed by him. It should be. Um, uh, years ago, I remember when I just sort of finished my PhD, um, I had to give a lecture on sort of greatest Britons or something, and I had to choose mm. one. And I chose James VI and first. And yeah, um, I mean, it, it happens that I, the book I'm writing about him now will coincide with the anniversary of his death. But I mean, I've for, for a long time just been phenomenally impressed by this king who succeeds to the crown of Scotland at 13 months. Um, the four regents who rule all meet um, unnatural ends. I mean, it is a terrific story of survival and resilience as well as constant engagement in you know every art form and intellectual form you know whether it's drama or the king james bible he's fascinating but he does seem to have been something of a financial disaster was that his doing i mean what exactly went wrong why was he having these constant arguments with his parliament well, I think crown finance was hopelessly outdated. It's a problem that all the Stuarts monarchs have. I mean, he is chronically indebted in Scotland too, so not much changes. It was very convenient in the historiography to sort of, oh, you know, he's just a spendthrift. It's massive yeah. extravagance. He has expensive tastes, but he also has a royal family. He also is running three countries, you know, with Ireland as well. And English crown finance desperately needs overhauling. I mean, even the debts that he faces when he arrives in March 1603 following Elizabeth's death. The English crown has just been fighting very expensive war in Ireland for nine years, as well as helping the Dutch. I mean, you know, English ministers are deeply alarmed about the state of crown finances before he comes to the throne. But mm. Elizabeth has been famously parsimonious um, and you know, hasn't filled bishoprics and hasn't maintained palaces. And then James arrives with a family and with a court, you know, with ambitions for England. He's, he's kind of expanded multiple monarchy now, England, Scotland and Ireland, to be, as he would see it, one of the leading Protestant kingdoms uh, in Europe. And yes, it is a real running problem. And that's his main reason for not wishing to get involved in the Thirty Years' War, alongside the fact that he is an instinctive pacifist who thinks that this uh, what becomes the Thirty Years' War isn't going to be solved on the battlefield. Mm. Like most conflicts, it needs diplomacy. But eventually, in 1621, towards the end of his reign, you know, he calls a parliament and basically says to MPs, you have been calling for this huge war. All right, you want me to lead these great armies, uh, Protestant armies in the field. Well, you've got to put up the money for them, and, and MPs aren't so keen. <laughs> so he never did take an army into Europe. No, there are sort of very, very small scale expeditionary forces, but no, no, uh, in the end, no. Now, Claire, I've been trying to get my head around the Thirty Years' War, and I've summarised it as a fight between Catholics and Protestants for supremacy in Europe, all conflated with imperialistic geopolitical ambitions. Is, is that about right? One of the points I was making in Devil Land was that Protestants are right to be worried that between 1588 and 1688, the bookends of the, the of Devil Land, the amount of 
territory controlled by Protestant powers in Europe shrinks from about a half in the 1590s Mm. to only about a fifth in the 1690s. And from that perspective, England begins to look like one of a sort of minority of countries inhabited by sort of stubborn heretics. So yes, I mean, this is the military dimension of the Reformation being fought out. and, And it is really gruesome. I mean, there is so much scorched earth policy you know, modern day Germany, so much of it is devastated. And eventually, uh, long after James dies, eventually simultaneous pieces are negotiated at Westphalia that try to sort of determine that from now on, the religion of a particular state will be determined by its leader. And this may be the only way of sort of achieving uh, a, a workable modus vivendi. But that's clearly unsatisfactory to either side who had hoped for all out victory. And where does France fit into this? Because France is still officially Catholic, but they're not great friends with the Habsburgs. So the other big sort of story I was trying to tell in Devil Land as well was where England positions itself as one giant superpower in the late 16th century. Spain declines in power and influence and is, by the end of the 17th century, overtaken by Louis XIV's France. Yeah. So the time around James's reign is the midpoint between that. Probably Spain is still perceived to be the traditional enemy. James himself has links directly with the French royal family. His mother, Mary, Queen of Scots, had a French family. He has lots mm. of Guise relatives from that dynasty. James himself is a staunch Calvinist, but there's always suspicions in England, particularly, but, but also overseas, that he could be induced to convert to Catholicism. Queen Anna is is a Danish Lutheran who abandons that and becomes a Catholic. Uh, his mother, Mary Queen of Scots, is widely regarded as a sort of Catholic martyr. And I think when you try and understand events like the gunpowder plot, it's really important to sort of see that all the time that people are waiting to see what happens on Elizabeth's death, it does seem as though maybe 1603 is the last chance for Catholics to imagine that England might be brought back into the Catholic fold. And there is a lot of as it turns out, false hopes projected onto James that, you know, he really might seek vengeance for Mary Queen of Scots's execution. He really might uh, one mm. you know, sort of be, be converted to Catholicism. And Catholics are then quite disappointed when it becomes very clear that he has no intention of this, that he will continue with the anti-Catholic laws of Elizabeth I. And also that this is going to go on now forever because he accedes to the throne with two sons, Henry and Charles, and a daughter. So this is now looking like some internal Protestant dynasty into the future. So for Catholics, you know, you can see the desperation of the plotters that, you know, something sort of pretty seismic has to be done. And they're also becoming sort of quite, quite disconcerted by the geopolitical realignments. At least under Elizabeth, Catholics could always look to Spain for support. Mm. And as recently as 1601, uh, Philip III's troops had landed at Kinsale and supported the Irish rebels against Elizabeth. But the minute James arrives in London, his point is, well, I'm not at war with Spain. I'm not at war with anyone. So one of the first treaties between a warring Protestant and Catholic nation is the Treaty of London in 1604 that James signs purely in his capacity as English king to bring peace between Spain and England. So again, for Catholics, it doesn't look as though English Catholics or Irish Catholics are going to get much support from the continent. So obviously we talked a bit there about the situation of Catholics in England. And there's a lot, in a lot of the dramas, particularly recently, about Guy Fawkes, the gunpowder plot, they're sort of saying it's on the back of this massive persecution of Catholics, that they're being captured and burnt. And in looking at it, James doesn't seem to have been particularly hardline on the Catholics until after the plot. 
even then, one could argue he's not that hardline. I think the plot is so sort of existential and, and vast in its ambition of taking out the entire political establishment that people naturally assume that it will be followed by a pretty frenzied anti-Catholic crackdown. That doesn't really happen. Um, instead, James frames an oath of allegiance, which is designed to isolate the determined sort of radical minority that really do want to wreak mayhem. He describes it as a means of separating the sheep from the goats in my pasture. He makes no inroads or, or claims about the Pope's spiritual supremacy, but he insists that Catholics who hold office or want to be in government and things must sign uh, and must swear an oath. Uh, recognizing that uh, he is the temporal monarch and that then is extended and levied on all adult Catholics. Uh, in theory, uh, you know, a, a very pious, um, loyal Catholic probably would have difficulty signing that or swearing such an oath because you know they, they would recognize um, the Pope's full power. But the majority of Catholics are loyal, have no problem reconciling a sort of covert adherence to their private faith with recognizing James as king. And that causes trouble across Europe. Um, James is very keen to impress on his fellow Catholic as well as Protestant leaders the danger that a radicalized papacy poses. Um, and in a way, the assassination of Henry IV sort of proves his point that Catholics are dangerous to Catholics as well as to Protestants. Right. So I haven't actually really gone into all that. So this is Henry IV of France, who was assassinated by an angry Catholic who was outraged that he had agreed to an alliance with the Protestant James. And Henry's death leads to a period when France has boy kings on the throne, which leads to the usual civil wars. This is the period when the famous Cardinal Richelieu from the Three Musketeers takes control, isn't it? And things don't really settle down until Louis XIV comes of age and, and rules as the mighty Sun King. So, Claire, all these stories of, you know, priest holes, people desperately worried that if they celebrate the Mass, they're going to be burnt at the stake. Is, is, is that exaggerated? It depends. I mean, there will always be particular instances of atrocity and, you know, it was still a pretty dangerous time to be a Catholic priest or, or to be a, a covert Catholic. But there's a sort of phenomenon known as church papists. Uh, so loyal Catholics who keep their faith very, very private, but will do the minimums outward adherence to the established faith to keep their, their heads down. And Queen Anna turns out to be one of the most prominent of them all. I mean, she does turn up at the very minimum amount of Anglican services, but you know, keeps her own private confessor. You know, much of it will depend on sort of local circumstances. You know, it, it, it doesn't take much to imagine popish plots throughout the 17th century. So, mm. um, you know, when people are looking for scapegoats, they often can kind of turn to Catholics. And there's particular fear of parts of the Catholic Church, like Jesuits, who are seen as particularly sort of radical or zealous in their missionary fervor. But also some of the Protestants themselves are not necessarily welcome everywhere, because this is a time of the leading up to the, the Pilgrim Fathers going over to America. I mean, James instinctively himself is probably an ecumenicist. I mean, he has this idea that the papacy should convene a huge new council, like the Council of Trent or some of these earlier um, assemblies, to try and reduce the number of differences. I mean, James is desperately worried that in the divisions and wars between Protestants and Catholics, that Christianity becomes the ultimate 
sort of victim and that it destroys mm. itself. So James is always trying to work for a, you know, constructing bridges between Protestants and Catholics, but that's deeply unpopular, as you say, to those uh, at the more Puritan end of the Protestant wing in England who had hoped that, especially as James was coming from Scotland, which has a sort of Presbyterian church, strong church, that he would spearhead this halfly reformed church that Elizabeth had left behind. James is very sort of typical when he arrives, summons a Hampton Court conference, wants to hear all the views, one outcome of which is the King James Bible sort of translation project. Mm. But he doesn't put himself sort of squarely behind the Puritan wing, I mean, far from it, and finds a lot of their anti-formalism, anti-authoritarian uh, views. You know, again, as distasteful as he'd found radical Presbyterians in Scotland. So yes, it, it is in James's reign that the Mayflower set sail with these very disillusioned Puritans who don't think that they are going to see in their lifetime the kind of fully reformed church that they'd hoped for. And how much was James involved? Because this is a period of starting to colonise North America. What, what were his views on that? There's a sort of stepping stone in the form of Ireland. So James yes. is very involved in plantation in Ireland, uh, which occurs... I mean, there have been plantation projects under Elizabeth, but very large-scale plantation in the north of Ireland occurs as a result of an unexpected development in Irish history when the main earls in the north of Ireland, the earls of Tyrone and Tyrconnell, who had led the rebellion against Elizabeth I, flee to the continent. Uh, they feel very much under pressure from uh, some of James's Protestant uh, governors in Ireland, and they flee to the continent, potentially seeking to raise armed forces to come back and perhaps restart the Nine Years' War. Now, again, just to clarify, because I didn't get into this earlier, these plantations aren't uh, crops or forests, are they? They're plantations of people. James is shipping English people over to Ireland, much as we saw the Plantagenets ship English people into Wales, and as was the Russians have been doing for a long while in the Ukraine, particularly in the Crimea. So there's a big push by James to take more control in Ireland now. And James has this sort of power vacuum in the north of Ireland. So very quickly with Francis Bacon and, and others, uh, sets, aside, sets about developing a very ambitious plan to plant Protestants from England and Scotland and also to offer some estates to loyal native landowners in, in Ireland with money from the city of London. Hmm. And that experience, we would now say it was... You know, it was permanent. I mean, the, the legacy of it has been uh, contested yeah. and disrupted to this day and, and, and very divisive. Um, but to to the minds of Jacobean administrators, um, it wasn't as successful as they'd hoped. A lot of uh, English and Scots didn't come over in floods wanting to sort of create these new estates in Ireland. But that experience is often seen as a sort of laboratory for um, Virginia and, and um, the, the early colonies in, in, in America. You know, Jamestown uh, is named yeah. after James. The James River is named after James. But those are really subcontracted to uh, the Virginia Company and other joint stock companies. Whereas James takes much more sort of personal proprietorial ownership of the plantation in Ireland, which he sees as being over his British subject. As I understand it, although nominally the king is Lord of Ireland, they only really had a toehold in in the Pale up in the northeast. But but now they're wanting to spread out through what is now pretty much Northern Ireland, isn't it? And across all of Ireland, I think um, you know, James right. has some very energetic Attorney General, Sir John Davis, who ensures that common law is, is observed throughout Ireland. Uh, the first 
Irish Parliament to meet from the 1580s, meets in 1613 with constituencies from across Ireland, including the new plantation areas. So uh, English authority would be felt much more tangibly across the whole of the country than it had been in the 16th century. But there's often a bit of a, again, a sort of slight disconnect between uh, the very Protestant and often quite abrasive uh, and really quite insensitive um, mindset of the English governors in Ireland, many of whom were military veterans of the Nine Years' War, you know, who had lived through a decade of atrocities, who'd lost compatriots and family members, who were therefore sort of intent on delivering conquest as victors in that war. And James, who arrives in 1603 and says, well, this wasn't really my war, and I don't think this is a very sort of tactful way of going about governing. And, you know, James has huge experience of working with regional magnates and clan chiefs in Scotland and is much more sort of pragmatic and flexible in his approach. But there's not many people at the English court thinking like James. And, yeah, a lot of James's instructions to governors on the ground in Ireland is go gently. Don't sort of go after Catholics, you know, apart from anything else, Mm. the numbers do not add up. You need to be realistic. I think James is, above anything else, a really pragmatic monarch. He knows in Scotland that the crown is very weak. So a lot of James's success in Scotland is balancing different clan groups. And he he always um, makes Elizabeth irate by not suppressing Catholic lords in the north of Scotland. But then that's because he's trying to sort of balance them against different factions elsewhere in Scotland. And I think he, he brings that same approach to the government of Ireland. It's just that there aren't very many people thinking like him. Mm-hmm. I mean, he seems modern in very many ways. I think he's remarkable. I think he's a really, really remarkable individual. Now, inevitably, Claire, this being a populist podcast, I want to get on to the question of James's sexuality. Um, Looking back over this distance, we're always in danger of imposing modern ideas and attitudes on historical figures with sometimes little understanding of the complexities of how things worked back then, how they were different. But I mean, what is the consensus now, if if there is one? I think you're exactly right that this is the area probably where insistence on seeing the world through 21st century glasses is most jarring. In a sense, modern historians, both popular and academic, have seemed far more obsessed about James's sexuality than many of his contemporaries were. Mm. Um, And I think this sort of binary, well, you know, was he gay or was he straight, you know, is is so irrelevant to an early 17th century mindset. Labels like homosexual and bisexual weren't in existence. I mean, it's far more reductionist in our language that we use today. Um, I think two things. I think um, one, he undoubtedly had emotional entanglements and sexual relations with men and women in his life. Uh, Women were probably a woman (laughs) in terms of his wife, (laughs) Queen Anna. But I think that that would be as important to James because of the dynastic responsibility he had um, to secure the succession. I mean, in this way, I think Elizabeth is, is... unbelievably negligent. And I, I really have never quite got the, the widespread admiration as a monarch that she seems to command, because it seems to me fundamentally negligent not to think about what is going to happen to your realm after you die, and then to make any discussion of the succession a capital offence. Whereas James, I mean, he says very openly in the, before he marries, I probably would have preferred to have delayed this, but, you know, I am alone in the world. I mean, he, both his parents, uh, well, at this point, his, mo- uh, his mother's been executed, his father was blown up and strangled quite quite <laughs> shortly after he was born. He doesn't have brothers and sisters. You know, he really hopes that he will be able to vindicate his hereditary right to secure Elizabeth. But one of the big attractions that he has in 1603 is that he does have a wife 
and uh, two male heirs and several daughters. So the dynastic bit is really important. And he obviously produces more heirs in the 1600s. So those sexual relations with Anna continue through the 1600s and probably tail off in the 1610s. But at the same time, he also has very intense relationships with young men, starting most sort of probably with one of his French Guise cousins, Esme Stuart, who becomes Duke of Lennox, who comes to Scotland uh, when James is is a teenager. And James is completely bowled over by this uh, sort of sophistication, kind of affection of this older cousin in his 30s. His Scots guardians are appalled, you know, that James is is very sort of physically affectionate with this cousin. Uh, And also that this cousin clearly has political ambitions and wants to sort of um, Mm. assume quite a prominent role in James's household. Um, And that really, I mean, James, some of the successes in inverted commas and and weaknesses of James's rule do um, have a direct relationship with some of his uh, closest advisors and favourites at the time. Um, And certainly... I think the latter years where he is very much under the emotional sway of George Villiers, Duke of Buckingham, uh, are some of the points where James, in one feels, is not as, uh, I mean, by then he's in his mid to late 50s, uh, is not, uh, you know, as as on top of um, yeah. policies as he could be. But is also, I mean, Buckingham is, is very clever at controlling the amount of information that James gets. Uh, so, Going back to what we were talking about in Ireland, uh, you know, Buckingham eventually sort of takes over this huge sort of lordship and patronage in Ireland, and I think the impression and the information that James received at the end of his life is, is has been very sort of curtailed by Buckingham. In that way, Buckingham one can see as being really quite a negative influence on James, but absolutely emotionally central to James. And I mean, you know, the letters are very explicit between them. This idea that they've got somehow be mutually exclusive. I mean, not at all. I mean, James is incredibly affectionate to Buckingham's wife and daughter, uh, probably more affectionate to Buckingham's children than he maybe was to his own when he was younger. <laughs> and, and what happened to Buckingham in the end? Uh, he was assassinated. Um, <laughs> he was still at the height of his powers at the time of James's death, so much so that when James died in 1625, uh, conspiracy theories immediately started proliferating that Buckingham had somehow had a, a a hand in James's death, that he'd somehow been responsible for poisoning the king. Um, very bizarrely, and you can subject this to all sorts of analysis if you wish, but uh, Buckingham then became very close to James's son, who became Charles I, mm-hmm. um, although Charles I had just married Henrietta Maria. It, it is incredible, just the amount of skullduggery that is still going on through this period, and people just outward openly murdering each other. Yes, I think maybe in a way that's why when James's son, Charles I, is put on trial by Parliament and publicly executed, this sends shockwaves across continental Europe. I mean, they are very familiar with monarchs being assassinated. Mm, but but not officially tried and executed. But the idea that subjects could dare to place their divinely ordained king on trial. I mean, Charles himself doesn't recognise the authority of the court for a minute. Yes. But nevertheless, it happens. And then the, in the in the way the English have the audacity to sort of stage this like judicial theatre and do it in, in the open air outside the banqueting house is completely shocking to continental monarchs alike and kind of brings us back to where we started of why the Dutch, you know, think by 1652 England has become devil land, that they've sort of staged mm. this grotesque inversion of a judicial trial um, and dared to execute their king in public, you know, with the hand of the 
common executioner and things. Well, there we are. We've managed to bookend your chat with your book. And I have to say, I really like the online image of the book. It's against a backdrop of a rather lovely looking family tree. I do like a family tree. And the big problem with doing a podcast is you can't have these visual aids. And it looks like this one was made in this era, going from William the Conqueror through to the Stuarts. It's produced um, at the time when there is so much speculation as to who will survive um, Elizabeth. Right. So in the 1590s. Okay. Um, and there are just so many different strands. I know. I mean, it looks, it looks so complicated. Beautifully done it is, it's, as a it's proper a... tree with branches and leaves. But it reminded me just how bloody complicated... <laughs> This whole thing is. And even in Devil Land, one thing we wanted to do actually was have a, a well, there is, there is a, a family tree of the Stuarts with the Palatine branch there too, because right. you know, um, Charles's sister Elizabeth. But actually constructing that turned out to right. be something we had to do from scratch. I thought it was very straightforward just to do a sort of extended Stuart family oh, tree and it wasn't. <laughs> so the Palatine line is the one that goes down through James's daughter Elizabeth. Is that right? Um, she marries into essentially a German family and this leads eventually to George I and the Hanoverians. Oh, what a tangled web it all is. And thank you very much, Claire, for, for, for helping me untangle all of this. It's been really interesting. And I'm very glad that I've got someone on who is pro, James. Absolutely pro, James. That's how I've ended up thinking about him. Thank you very much for having me. So that was Claire Jackson and that was James I, who was a pragmatist and a very able politician. Unlike the subject of our next episode, his hopeless and hapless son, Charles. And I'm sure I don't need to tell you what happened to him. But I'm going to anyway. Don't miss it. Willy Willy Harry Stee was written and presented by me, Charlie Hickson, with music by Tom Jenkins and production by Mark Jeeves. Willy Willy Harry Stee, the podcast, is the copyright of Charlie Higson, 